went down and the jungle fire was burning. Down the track came a hobo hiking and he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away beside the crystal fountains. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright. Welcome into episode two of Legal Fiction. We haven't been canceled yet. Dose. (laughs) We actually came back for another one. So again, uh, I'm Joe, joined by Spencer. Hello. We are your hosts for this pod. If you haven't listened to the first episode, what we do in this podcast is talk to us about movies, pop culture, anything like that. We are both baby lawyers. We just graduated from law school. So rather than boring you with another legal podcast where we talk about the law and how it applies to society, we're going to talk about dumb stuff like movies because that's what we actually like. Buyer beware. We will be talking about the law when it suits us. Caveat, this is about portrayals of the law in pop culture, whether it be film and eventually TV. And our maxim here is to not be that guy and say, well, they would never do it like that. But at the same time, we also kind of want to explore, well, why wouldn't they do it like that? Yeah. So, I mean, like like Spencer said, we all hate that annoying person when you're going to watch a movie who's like, they'd never do it like that, or that's not realistic. But at the same time, going to law school, it's fun to kind of point out what things you'll be like, oh, that's actually true, or what? So getting into first, uh, like we said, this podcast is about the intersection of law and pop culture. So we just want to go over some Quick little legal news. We are recording this podcast two days after the Derek Chauvin verdict came back. Has um, it only been two days? It, all I have uh, to say is uh, good. It was, uh, it was a good verdict. That's uh, <laughs> about I got on that. Agreed. Well, I mean, all I know is what I read in the papers, Joe. Uh, that being said, uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy that they uh, convicted a guy of murder when we had video of a guy committing murder. <laughs> like, that's kind of crazy to me. Guy caught doing murder on tape, convicted of murder. Shocking. Yep, yep. So, yeah, so good verdict. Um, obviously, at the same time, thoughts and prayers to the families of Dante Wright, Adam Toledo, and all the others. Absolutely. Absolutely. Other legal news, a nice little fun thing that I saw was job market, not good for 2020 law school grads. So, hey, all you kids listening to this that are just about to graduate from law school, things still look like shit. Yeah. (laughs) Guys, remember boning up for torts or admin (laughs) law? It was worth it. It was worth it. (laughs) All kidding aside, uh, that that does suck coming out uh, on this. I mean, yeah, yeah. Struggle. But at the same time, maybe for some of these folks, this is a blessing in disguise and they will venture into much more uh, fulfilling and healthy uh, pursuits such as uh, lion taming, uh, bartending, <laughs> podcasting. I'm sure at least one Etsy will come out of this poor job market. And you know what? The world will be improved for that. So yes. I look forward to knickknacks and macrame <laughs> from someone with a JD who, you know, operates exclusively out of Tulsa. And I, as soon as I like told people that I was going to law school, it was like so crazy. The people that came out of the woodwork, they were like, oh, yeah, I have a law degree. Not a lawyer, but I got a law degree. And they're like, what? Like, I don't know how I met all of a sudden these people in my life are like, oh, yeah, I went to law school, but never used it. Like, 
you realize I'm about to start law school, right? Is this <laughs> the best thing to tell me? So, but yeah, so then moving more into entertainment news, Spencer, you're a big fan of Ted Lasso. Yep. <laughs> uh, God, it, it comes on in July through Apple yeah. TV. Fam, uh, if you haven't gotten on the Ted Lasso wagon yet, do it. I've actually become an Apple TV subscriber solely for this show, much like some folks join I'm Netflix. I'm not, so if so anyone can... just wants to send their login info to legalfictionpodcast at gmails just so I can bum it to watch first season and maybe second season of Ted Lasso, be much appreciated. Yeah, I, I will not be sharing that info with you, Joe, but one of our listeners may. They may be more charitable. Oh, it, it's just a fantastic show, and... Oh, I mean, uh, Jason Sudeikis did win an Emmy. Formerly, I could give about the Emmys, like much like I care about the Grammys. But for his, it was well-deserved. It, it's a truly heartwarming yet humorous role. It will make you, A, want to watch more soccer, which is always a good thing. And B, uh, it, it'll both validate your skepticism of the world, but also encourage you for future endeavors. So that's all I have to say. Plus, the coaches in the show never break character. Every coach is just coach. And that's that's like just spot on. Yeah, everything I've heard from it is that it's like the one like bright light in like the pandemic right now. So that is great. Yeah, pretty much. It is kind of weird, though, because like the music is the, uh, oh, you know, the jangly guys uh, from Scotland, you know, it's the Americana band. Oh, uh, not Avid Brothers, but uh, you know, Little Lion Man, all that shit. Uh, oh, of Monsters and Men? No, no, not of Monsters and Men. The, uh, oh, yeah. shoot. I, that's not of Monsters I, I know who you're talking about. I, yeah. the No. The Lumineers? No. No, no, no. You're, you're <laughs> close. Those are all coming after them. Oh, God. I know who, I know who you're talking about. Shoot. Uh, 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 man, we have truly retconned ourselves on this one, man. Okay. Uh, so... It'll come to us when we're talking about the movie. Hey, this is Joe editing. Uh, it's goddamn Humphrey and Sons, and I feel like an idiot. Some other topics. New Paul Thomas Anderson film is releasing this Thanksgiving. It still doesn't have a title, but it is codename Soggy Bottom. And I am ready for this. PTA, Benny Safdie is going to be starting in a role in it as is Bradley Cooper and the band Haim 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 yep set in the 70s it's going to be sweet that's all I got to say about that I'm going to watch it uh well, I guess it has uh, I guess it has been one locust plague since the last Paul Thomas Anderson movie that <laughs> seems to be the cycle he's working on it's like you know I I, I kind of measure PTA movies by you know, World Cups that the Team USA makes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, well, actually, maybe this bodes well for the U- Team USA's chance to make the next World Cup. Uh, I'm encouraged S- by this. Community. Super League fall and a new PTA film, the stars are aligning for the U.S. Absolutely, absolutely. Kind of on the Ted Lasso being that one shining light, Netflix is going to just flood that market to try to put out that light. They are reportedly going to spend 17 billion with a b dollars on new content I'm sorry. this year i'm sorry that's 17 with a b billion and that's an increase of five billion from their last year's budget which granted covid but like still 17 billion dollars on new stuff i feel like i check netflix uh, whenever i go on and it'll be like there's like 30 new shows and movies that are on there 
And every week they report that like 80 million people watch this in its first week that it came out. It's just, it's annoying. Man, with $17 billion, I don't know. Like, yes, we could put out a bunch of original true crime shows or with $17 billion, I could simply buy the states of Mississippi and Alabama (laughs) combined and turn the entire region into a, I don't know, open paintball ranch. I guess every once in a while, there's like a shining light that Netflix releases that becomes a sensation like a Tiger King, a Queen's Gambit. But there's just so much that you have to sift through that it's the overwhelming of choice when you're watching it. And then you end up just watching something that you've watched 30 times already. Yeah. And God, I don't know if you've been in that situation where you're sitting at a group of friends or listening (laughs) to a podcast for that matter where people just start dropping like, so this is what I've been watching on Netflix. And you're like, oh yeah, I guess I saw that when I was clicking through. Is it good? And they're like, no, it's, it's fun. It's just like, sell me on it. And itch me on it. But like, that's truly sort of the, like, like you said, 90% of Netflix shows are sort of like, eh, like, I guess if I have nothing else going on, like, yeah, did I just have surgery and I'm going to (laughs) be couch bound for two days? Yeah, let's throw that on. All right, so then the last piece of news, obviously a ton of movies got delayed last year. One of them that is releasing here just in a couple weeks, Spiral. I'm ready for this. It's either going to be good or it's going to suck, but either way, it's going to rule and I'm going to watch it because it's a scary movie that's got Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson in it. Yeah, it was written by the guy who wrote the really bad last Jigsaw movie, but either way, I'm going to watch it. <laughs> Come and think of it, you throw out the name Sam Jackson and Chris Rock. They're either in impeccable pieces or just the worst dog shit you've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that could go either way. Maybe the two balance each other out. Uh, All right. <clears throat> so, as you can probably tell by the title of this episode, we are looking over one of the most popular legal movies that I've ever heard of, but actually is my first time ever watching Runaway Jury. Criminal uh, that you went 18 <laughs> years without seeing this movie, sir. But. I, you know, I, I, this, you know, maybe I'm giving myself away for future episodes. I have not seen a lot of John Grisham movies. <gasps> and I know that like, as someone that went to law school, that's like a cardinal sin. They're like, you didn't watch legal movies. I was like, I didn't watch the Pelican brief. And that made me want to go to law school. Like that wasn't my moment. <laughs> cool. If that was you, but I've seen some, I just, I, I, there's going to be a lot on here. I'll be like first time. Okay. Well, have you ever read any Grisham? Have, okay. You're asking me if, have I ever read a book? The list is going to be a lot shorter. <laughs> uh, if it wasn't for my AR program at school or a textbook, Chances are going to be a lot slimmer. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And uh, spoiler alert for you, uh, Grisham diehards out there. Uh, neither of us had read the original Grisham book on this. So yeah, it, yeah. if you have thoughts about why the book was better, we really don't fucking care. Um, <laughs> I read the Wikipedia of the book. That's got to count for something, right? Book reports have been written and submitted <laughs> for grades <laughs> with less research. John Grisham's Runaway Jury published in 1997, tells the tale of a highly confrontational tort battle in the state of Mississippi, underrated state, by the way, in a lawsuit between a plaintiff's family and going after big tobacco. 
published in 1997. This film, Runaway Jury, shares much of the same plot and characters and general themes. However, in the film, instead of Big Tobacco as the defendant, we have big guns or gun manufacturers as the defendant. Yeah. Now, Joe, I'm curious, why do you think they changed that defendant between 1997 and 2003? I mean, my mind immediately goes Columbine, but I don't really know. I don't, I don't. Well, I once don't again, know. Joe, you stumbled on a little bit of truth while being totally wrong. Uh, <laughs> That's how now, I got the, all my law school essays passed. The, hey man, just point grab, just throw that on the page. <laughs> No, no. Uh, What happened was uh, after the book was published in 1997, that's when anti-tobacco litigation ramped up to the point where the United States government forced a huge settlement with big tobacco in the late 90s. We're talking a hundred billion dollars plus. We're talking each state's attorney generals getting their own share of all of these settlements where big tobacco after decades of, you know, playing coy. And, you know, it was a big mega culprit for them. You know, they just came to the government and said, here's a lot of money. Please let us stay in business. And so that takes a lot of wind out of the sails. So naturally by 2003, it's like, well, it wouldn't make much sense to make a movie going after Big Tobacco when Big Tobacco's already been got. So they pick a new big bad guy, which happens to be Big Guns. Thankfully, those guys have already been put out to roost and we don't need to worry about them anymore. (laughs) But uh, anyhow, but what's also really interesting about this, though, is that as as we get talking about the plot, this gun litigation, I mean, there was a wave of plaintiffs, you know, mass torts, you know, like class action cases against gun manufacturers across the country. And it picked up in the 80s when gun violence really picked up and it continued through the 90s. We're talking like county governments were suing various gun manufacturers on various legal theories uh, for all of the gun violence occurring in their communities. And beyond that, eventually those wave of lawsuits failed from cities and counties. Plaintiff's attorneys sort of took a different strategy in terms of, you know, finding very sympathetic plaintiffs in very tragic circumstances, like the most egregious types of shootings, what we would now call mass shootings, what we would call back in the 80s and 90s, an unfortunate event, to press these. And, and, And the law related to it has shifted too, and it pushed until... Eventually, Congress stepped in and then just codified protections for gun manufacturers, being like, nope, you will not be found liable under products liability. Uh, Nope, you're fine, nor will you be found liable for some negligent dealer or supplier, you know, or middleman, like, you know, kind of offloading these to to some 'er ne'er-do-well. Like, it's just fascinating. This movie falls right in the middle between this country becoming aware of, like you pointed out, post-Columbine, aware of like mass shooting events being a, a truly growing phenomenon and a real threat. And then also Congress <laughs> coming in and being like, nah, gun guys, you're good. I'd like to thank Trent Watt for that. But uh, yeah. that, that's a necessary, uh, necessary preface, I suppose. For the, uh, <laughs> no, the I mean, it kind of explains, like you said, the, why they made that change in the movie. Getting into the movie itself, we start out, we're in New Orleans, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, which I will say this movie 
makes sure that you know this takes place in New Orleans. Like if you had any confusion, they put it in stone. We are in New Orleans. It is basically a character in this movie. Yep. Absolutely. John Cusack's getting a beignet on his way to his job. At a certain point, there's a there's a second line band that comes up behind something. No, there isn't. But like, you're right. It's truly a character in the film. And I love that. So like I said, takes place in New Orleans, which again, I pointed out like in our last episode with Liar Liar, I appreciate how there was still some like foreplay of like the credits and like the cast rolling over, which I wrote down in my notes as we were playing this. They were showing all the cast members like Dustin Hoffman, Gene Hackman, John Cusack, Rachel Weiss. And I was like, but that's Dylan McDermott on the screen. Why aren't they showing him? Why aren't they putting his name on there? Well, guy playing Dylan McDermott uh, gets to work. He's talking with his secretary about his son's birthday and he wants to sing a song for him tonight. And all of a sudden gunshots go off. There's obviously an active shooter in the building. He barricades the door. They try to call 911. Door gets busted open, Dylan McDermott, bam, gets shot. Immediately, I was like, oh, that's why he wasn't a top-built cast member in this. Oh, they drew Barrymore us on that one, man. They they front-loaded the movie with like, oh, I know that guy. Oh, so she's going to be the lead. And, you know, like fast forward three minutes and, well, we've got an um, automatic assault pistol in his face and there it goes. <laughs> I literally wrote down in my notes as a shout-out, I was like, oh, that's why he wasn't listed at the beginning. I was like, maybe he's like, this is before he got big or something. And that's why he was already big Joe. And here's what's interesting. So like, what is Dylan McDermott most known for in his career? I mean, like if you had to take a stab at it, I, it depends what generation you come from. Cause a lot of people, the younger you ask, will say American horror story. Cause he was in the first season and he was very well known for that. Yeah. Okay. The practice. Yeah. Yeah, oh, ABC's yeah. The Practice, where he plays Jimmy, aggressive plaintiff's attorney's firm, I think out of Boston, tried a case against a gun manufacturer <laughs> for negligent sales and intentionally trying to sell like kit parts to people like they couldn't sell you an automatic pistol directly, but they could sell you the kit and then the one piece of metal that would actually put it all together in two different packages so I just can't help but appreciate connection there that, you know, Dylan McDermott's like, oh, so another gun thing? Okay, yeah, uh, I, I'm in. Wait, so, so how many days do I have to work? One? Okay, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he got his check and got out on this movie for sure. The movie flashes to a year later. John Cusack, like, just going around his day at this point. Yep. He lives in New Orleans. Like you said, he's doing a very New Orleans-style day where he is leaving his apartment to get a beignet and some coffee. Which is another thing I pointed out in every movie where it takes place in New Orleans, the apartments that these people live in are just like dilapidated pieces of shit. Like, I don't yeah. understand if like zoning <laughs> laws like and like building codes don't exist in New Orleans. But every show and movie I've watched where it's in New Orleans, I'm like, that apartment you look, that you're in looks like it's going to fall down in a week. Like, Well, and, and that's part of the charm. It, it, it's one of the oldest cities in the country. You know, and first of all, uh, I mean, there is zoning in, in Louisiana, but it is uh, <laughs> it's not I, a Houston. I, I mean, yeah. Unlike Houston, uh, like you know, it is an old city. And like, I mean, you've been to New Orleans, haven't you? I have not. I've never been okay. to New Orleans. It, it, it's old and it's beautiful. But man, like I'm looking at that. It's like 
yeah, you're probably paying way more in rent than you should be. To live. <laughs> it, it's uh, no different than New York in that respect, except uh, just older and moister and moldier. <laughs> and uh, you know, the grid doesn't work too well sometimes. It's, uh, God, uh, but you're absolutely right. Like every apartment and hell, even the courtroom in this movie is just sort of like, damn, like it's what you all working with. All right. So he obviously he gets his letter that he's been called for jury duty. And he's like, oh, great. Which is the very typical sort of reaction of anyone when you get called for jury duty where you're like, sweet. Um, he's already getting snooped on by the like, team of the defense basically yeah, yeah. like they're Alpha all squad yeah they're already like recording him and photographing him like to see what he's like as a person which i was like i mean maybe that happens but damn that seems like real clandestine sort of operations he goes into a shop to buy a candle and this is the first moment where he is on screen with rachel weiss and mm. there's no sort of indication that they know each other at this point like it's very much like they're just strangers meeting in a shop talking and in my head i was like is this a subtle nod to serendipity they're meeting like out of chance and i was like obviously she's bill so they're gonna like have something later ends up that's not the case he then leaves we get in it gene hackman gets introduced okay first of all gene hackman i think we can all agree the man like just never phones it in always dialed up, never too loud, never too boisterous. He's just Hackman. He just does it. And he comes in, he's in his slick suit, you know, well-tailored. He's an older gentleman, but he's put together. He's in control of everything in every scene in this movie. I I wrote down in this part of my notes, he's basically like Sherlock Holmes at this point, because he looks at like a couple of things on the taxi driver's like dashboard and he's like oh you have a mother who just got out of the hospital your wife doesn't want her to stay there but like you should kick your mother out because it's better to have an unhappy mother than an unhappy wife and the guy's like how did you know all that yeah and it's it's impressive and not only does it set the tone for this guy is just cold and calculative and like ruthless but it's showing versus telling and that's like good filmmaking it's awesome i'm like all right hackman's here let's go so obviously we, we see that he's like the very polished, like you said, like cold calculating man. Then we switch to the other side and we have Jeremy Piven, who is a another sort of jury consultant, but he's like a jury consultant with a heart. And he comes to meet Dustin Hoffman, who is meeting with the uh, plaintiffs on this case, talking about how he can offer his services. Uh, I wrote down that this is him basically playing Ari Gold before he got his balls because <laughs> he's he's like, he's right on the cusp of being like an a-hole and like a smart ass, but he's like still kind of got that like gleam in his eye where he's like, I want to do the right thing. So like, that's why he wants to work for Dustin Hoffman in this case. Yeah, this was back when Jeremy Piven was likable. Like, do you remember that time? It was a good time in film when we're like, oh, fuck, Jeremy Piven. Like, he's great. He's wonderful. The guy from PCU, that's awesome. And like, the dean from old school, man. uh, Yeah, or the brother of Ellen DeGeneres in the Ellen show, (laughs) for the real heads know. Also, like, either college or high school, like, best friends with John Cusack. Like, they go back and they've been in. Is Cusack a Midwest boy, too? Because I know Piven is. Piven's from, like, Indiana or Illinois, I think. 
you know, I don't know if he's actually originally from the great flyover states, but I think they met at Northwestern or something like that. Ah, yes. So, so yeah, so he's poor, he's kind of pouring his resume and his heart out to Dustin Hoffman of why he should work on this case. He's like, I think you can win this case, but you're going to need my help. Dustin Hoffman makes a very kind of, I say good characterization of what you see in the legal world where it's like, Oh, you're some big city, like fancy lawyer or fancy businessman in this case, come in and tell me how to do my job. And, you know, I'm just this like small, which is like, you're in new Orleans. You're not a small city lawyer, but like he like, I'm just like, some I'm, small parish lawyer here. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you, you practice in one of the biggest cities in the South. You're not a little, like a tiny town lawyer. But it plays up that sort of like, I'm just a poor little, like, little city lawyer. He does take him on. Uh, he's like, fine, you can work with me for less of your fee. From there, we go back to Hackman, and he assembles his team, which right away, Mighty Duck Girl is in oh. this. She's his assistant. I mean, no, no, she's not his assistant. I would say or his, like, his lieutenant. Second, second in command. Yes, say, yeah. she is running the show. How dare you uh, <laughs> belittle Marguerite uh, Moreau, uh, also known as Connie of Mighty Ducks lore, who it, it's sad to see that in the four years between D3, uh, where she started at Eden Hall with the rest of the Ducks on scholarship, uh, she suddenly has fallen into the grips of some, you know, nefarious organization hell-bent on wronging poor widows and I don't know, otherwise. that kind of tracks for a ritzy private school kid. Well, yeah, but I'm just talking about it, it happened really fast. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what happened between her and Guy Germain. Clearly it didn't work out. You know, she does well at Eden Hall and, you know, gets to an Ivy League, uh, yeah, maybe even on a hockey scholarship. I mean, Connie had game, let's be real. But, you know, it comes, you know, disillusioned. Maybe the, I mean, I don't know what happened, but a trigger got pulled. And, uh, you know, one internship with McKinsey leads to uh, <laughs> another <laughs> opportunity. And suddenly you are literally. Uh, She's like, I'll just pay my loans and that you are. Oh. You're literally the devil's handmaiden, and uh, but she does it well. I mean, I'd hire her. Should yeah, they're going over the list of like potential jurors from the jury pool, which I wrote down at this point. This movie might be one of the top movies for oh that guy. Like there were so many people that from not just the jury pool, but sitting in that room working on Hackman's team. I was like. I know that face and I know that face and I know that face. Like there was the dude who runs the computer all the time with the glasses. He's been a ton of stuff. The dude who eventually kind of becomes the guy who does a lot of the groundwork for Hackman is a guy I've seen in a ton of stuff. A bunch of the jury members are also oh. people that I've seen in so many other things. Half of the they're... jury members are named actors. Like, <laughs> yeah. just like, 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 you know, I know that cat. This, this is an excellent ensemble cast. You know? Yes, and it's not even billed as that. You know, it's billed as like big, like four big names. But like, you take a cut down to the second and even third tier. And I mean, hell, Jennifer Beals has like two speaking lines in the whole <laughs> movie. Flashdance is just out there, just fucking torching it. Um, I mean, getting her paycheck for about you know ninety seconds of screen time. 
Just amazing. Yes. So they're they're going over John, and they don't know much uh, about him in this movie. They're just like he's a manager at this video game store. He says he goes to college, but like he's not enrolled anywhere, so we don't know much about him. Which I was like, this guy is like John Cusack is playing very well when they show the video of like the disinterested GameStop manager, where like he's really there to just kind of flirt with the moms that come in that buy stuff for their kids. And like, that's about it. Like he has no other interest in anything else. So they're, then they're interviewing these people, like in a typical sort of what's called voir dire session, where you ask the people who could potentially be on the jury, just basic questions of, will you have any bias in this case? Do you feel you can be truthful? Anything like that. Um, ask about their background to see who you want to object to, who you're fine with. You have a limited amount of people that you can strike from the jury just for any reason at all john cusack tries i say with like the air quotes to get himself excused from the jury with this uh this idea of the madden challenge where you play was it madden with like other famous people like nfl stars to win money mr easter that's the second time you've looked at your watch are we keeping you from something no your honor i wouldn't presume to waste your time i just I think if you knew my situation, you might be inclined to excuse me. Your situation, Mr. Easter? Yes, Your Honor. It's the uh, Madden Challenge. The Madden what? You know Madden Football? It's a video game? Well, you'd be surprised at how many people play. At at any rate, every year they choose the best 15 players from across the country to compete in a kind of tournament, you know, against NFL players and celebrities. I'm not following you. It's like this, Your Honor. The prize is $100,000. Which like my head started going crazy because obviously this came out in 2003. So it's not what video games are like today, but I just pictured John Cusack, like streaming Madden on Twitch and just like screaming at 13 year olds after he like 80 points them in a game, just like, let's go. Like just like destroying little kids and like being like, just being like, let's go chat. Come on. Like, so I was just dying at that point. And in my mind, I, I pictured the opposite since there wasn't really online gaming wasn't nearly what it is now. Just imagining John Cusack sitting next to Jerome Bettis in <laughs> opposite Barca loungers and Jerome Bettis just looking at his watch as John Cusack is like just shredding him on a video game. So he makes this whole speech. The judge says, no, let's give you a lesson in civic duty and be honest, which when that judge came up, kind of like our last episode, I was like, man. This dude looks like a judge. Totally forgot that's a D-Day from it's Animal D-Day. House. <laughs> it's D-Day. And Bruce McGill, the actor, like of all of the that guys in this movie, I think he might be the top that guy. Yeah. Like, he's like, he, he's always in a movie. Like, it's so weird because he started as D-Day in Animal House. And he's like, all his characters since then, at least in his like later years, have been like, not what you would expect D-Day to turn into. Like he's well, become this very like polished, like prim and proper man. Well, clearly Delta House uh, had the stuff of leaders. Okay, <laughs> I mean we had future Senator John Plotarski. Dude's career has been, I mean, he's been working steadily for four decades, and like you, you can't see a mahogany-colored film without him <laughs> in it. He he just owns it. It's like if there's a scene where you expect a. Uh, a glass of bourbon to come into play, he's probably going to be one of the guys holding it. So, so John Cusack is put on the jury. So we get into jury the actual, number nine. We get put into the actual case, and he they start hearing things. 
At one point, uh, Rachel Weiss in a disguise just gives an envelope to the security guard and she's just like, okay, cool. Just walks up and hands it to the two <laughs> lawyers. So I was like, this is like height of the anthrax scare. And you're just going to take oh. a random package from someone and be like, yeah, I'll give it to him. I was like, what? <laughs> like, that would immediately lock the building down. <laughs> oh, damn, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, Rachel Weiss is a security risk. Uh, so that was the one part where I started laughing. I'm just like, just imagine in a court today, be like, hey, can you give this to the judge up there? And the <laughs> security guard being like, yeah, sure. And just like walking it up to him. So they, <laughs> they do some more meddling with the jury where Rachel Weiss then calls, delays their lunch order. So they start getting a little angry and bickering with each other because they haven't eaten yet. So John Cusack, all smooth, slips out of the jury room, goes over, sees the judge and lets them all come over to that restaurant and eat. To and a then a four-star <laughs> New Orleans quarter restaurant. Watching that scene made me just perpetually hungry for good Creole food. Yes. They get into some just like further jury scenes where it's it's very much established that the character Frank, uh, who's like a Marine veteran. Frank Herrera. Yeah, veteran. he... He's just like, he's kind of like, yeah, yeah, they're trying to portray him as your typical kind of like. Also played um, Smiley in Training Day, if you recognize him. No, he's another one of those guys that I was like, I know that guy from somewhere. Like he's been in a lot of things and he does a good job of playing that sort of like military hardo where like everything is so serious because I, I, you know, I'm a Marine veteran. It's like, thank you. I appreciate that. But like, it doesn't matter right here. So it does a good thing of like playing him up as an a-hole. I like that. They couple other people in the jury box though, Louise Guzman. But oh, I love Louise Guzman. Yeah, and can't you know? Frankly, he did not get enough screen time on this. Like I'm like, oh, Louise Guzman's in this joint. All right, let's go, Louise. Like go off, King. And like, man, they really just shorted his lines. They they try to like identify. I I thought there was this very funny like early two thousands like we don't really know what technology is yet scene where. They, they try to get a picture of Rachel Weiss as she's leaving. And he's like, enhance that. And the guy's just like, <laughs> it like zooms in on her face. And I'm like, that's such a like early CSI where it's like, zoom in. I'm like, the picture's going to be the same quality, man. You can't just zoom in and you see their face. It's actually, it's actually going to get worse the bigger we make this. <laughs> yeah. But all right. So that's what we need to look for a woman who's made up of 16 squares. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Can we just talk about Gene Hackman's like jury research compound? Like, like again, he's I like count- a Sherlock Holmes. The reason that he is a top dog in this industry is like because of what he can do. Well, but I also count like two dozen support staff and yeah. you know three times that many monitors. Oh, it's just absurd. Like it's very. I mean, you know what it's got uh, touches of is like sort of that manic, like technological, like pace is uh, like if you go back to Enemy of the State, where we were just blown away by the Tony Scott portrayal of like all of these like screens and images, like relaying information (laughs) real quick and like, what the fuck? Whereas like in reality, you want to pull all this shit together. It's going to take months of like (laughs) 
public record requests and or like greasing the wheels at hospitals to get this shit. The gun lobby paid top dollar for Gene Hackman and his team services. So <laughs> I have no doubts in their ability to hack systems and to do everything illegal possible to get this information. But God dang, like it was a little bit overwhelming. And that being said, uh, if they're hiring, I'd happily take the job. That sounds fun <laughs> as shit. Like, all right, let's go. They get into more court scenes where Dustin Hoffman, as the plaintiff's attorney, is questioning the gun store owner who sold. Yeah, the point of these- source sale. Yeah, like the retailer. This guy bought 112 guns in four months, which... I mean, look, I'm not an avid gun buyer, but I was like, that's, let me do some math here. That seems like a lot. Might throw off a little bit of red flag, but I don't know the full extent of an avid gun owner's activities. So, well, and this case, uh, you know, the case brought by Dustin Hoffman, who's wonderful in this movie, by the mm-hmm. way, I get it. this gun case is actually an amalgam of two high profile cases from the 90s and early aughts brought against gun manufacturers for you had red flags of dealers selling, you know, scores of guns in tight time frames to the same guy over and over again. You rewarded him. And also you advertised this gun as unique for the urban combat environment. I mean, you're, you're blowing all the dog whistles that you can to signal to people, hey, <laughs> You like doing crimes? <laughs> Do crimes with this. Uh, I mean, seriously, even down to uh, at a certain point, Dustin Hoffman, I mean, it's the owner of Vicksburg Arms, the, the bad guy yeah. in this movie, who says, like, you know, fingerprint resistant finish. Like, that's actually from, like, pulled from prior cases, like, wherein they, mm. they marketed their guns as, like, no, it's fingerprint resistant, which, you know, the, the Vicksburg Arms guy goes, well, you know, because fingerprints are water and that causes rust. This movie is just, you know, taking notes from all these lawsuits, trying to put together a compelling plot. But in terms of the law, at least in the 90s and aughts, gun manufacturers were doing anything they could to get leverage over the other manufacturer and get their stuff. And they knew where their markets were. And, yeah. you know, they advertised fingerproof resistant. Obviously, I didn't know any of that. So, so then, then Hackman orders one of his workers to break into Cusack's apartment and st- see if he can steal any sort of information on him. Which again, I wrote in my notes, Stu's apartment is very shitty. <laughs> it's well, like it's New a, Orleans, man. <laughs> I know that's the thing. That's what I kept writing down. I'm like, these this New Orleans apartments just seem terrible. John catches him right in the act. There's a chase scene, which this is where I wrote down again. This is such a New Orleans chase scene. There's a scene where they knock over a woman, drops all of her beignets. And I was like, okay. And then there's another scene where a jazz band is like playing at the restaurant that they run through. I'm like, I get it. We're in New Orleans. Like I already knew that. All Uh, we're missing is someone getting blinded by beads. And then maybe uh, the guy, the bad guy punching a police horse, you know? I was like, I get it. We're in NOLA. I got it. He he, bar- he almost catches him, but the guy gets away with some of his stuff. So Cusack knows they're on to me for something at this point. Uh, there's not, there has been some indication though at this point as well that Cusack and Weiss, are, they're working together to swing the jury one way or the other. Like we, at this point, all we can really tell is that they're just looking to get paid to swing the jury for a liable or not liable. Cusack rubs some like, I think it's like a 
chapstick or something around on his face and all this stuff so that he looks super hungover, which I was yeah, like, I've never needed to do that before. Normally it comes naturally, but, <laughs> which uh, I point out. That's one of the best hangover acts I've ever seen. Like when I, when he was acting hungover, I was like, he looks hungover. I was like, that is a very good acting job at hungover. He does this because he knows that one of the jury members drinks like while they're deliberating, he's caught her pouring. Jim alcohol. Yes. Yep. So he like, he comes up to her and he's like, Oh, I had a late night, drank too much. She offers him a little hair of the dog. He purposely spills it while she's pouring. They get, in front of the judge, John tries to take the blame, but he basically narks her out and she gets mm-hmm. dismissed from the jury. They break back into his apartment again to steal the, like, it's got to be the first iPod ever made. Easily, easily. Like, uh, it is the first generation iPod, which it's I a do 12 like. pound iPod. Yeah, it's, it's that thing that you, you could kill someone throwing that thing. They steal it, which. At this point, the one dude, which maybe it's just supposed to be that he's the crazy guy of the crew, he lights his place on fire, which I was like, why? And the one guy's like, don't do that. But he does it. I'm like, the whole point of breaking in and taking the iPod was that he didn't know you were breaking in and stealing stuff from them. So then he burns down his place. Jeremy Piven is there and just like sees Snooping them. Snooping through the mail. Yeah. What? And there's not really any like thing that comes from that other than he just tells them later that he saw it happen. So John Cusack, because this has happened, takes that video evidence of the first break-in, shows it to the judge. They asked for a mistrial, which like, I was like, in my opinion, this is a pretty good case for a mistrial. Wait, you've got some stranger invading a juror's place in a heightened uh, matter of public concern and like well-publicized yeah. lawsuit where millions, if not billions of dollars are at stake. And that- Oh, well, it was just a home burglar dressed as, yeah, no, yeah, that's fine. This just yeah. happens. Yeah, so instead of declaring a mistrial, he sends these poor jurors to the Texas-Louisiana border, which, woof, um, that is a, that's a rough place to have to live for a couple weeks, but uh, sends them there. Uh, John is talking with one of the other jurors because at this point, we've also seen that Hackman has basically blackmailed a ton of the other jurors he's threatened one with fake fbi arrest he's threatened other ones with just a multitude of things so john's consoling her um on this part there's another scene with the frank herrera where he he goes on another sort of like power trip to john he's like oh you think you're a big man because you're the leader to the other jurors and so it's more just establishing him as this guy's an a-hole then we get into where Hoffman wants to call his star witness to mm-hmm. the case, which and is he's supposed to be a corporate executive. Who's, yes. I mean, his inside track is like, no, we know what we're doing. I mean, our marketing materials are what they are. Our distribution network is what it is. We want to sell as many guns as possible. And quite frankly, undesirable or criminal elements are going to pay top dollar for this pistol, this quote unquote, you know, military assault style pistol. That's not for hunters or sportsmen. We know what we're doing. So yeah. what happened to him, Joe? He doesn't show up uh, hmm. to testify. And there's a point in this where I'm like, did Hackman have him killed? Or Unclear. 
or did he pay him a lot of money? What's because like no one hears him. Like he's never mentioned again. You don't know what happens to this guy. So I'm like, let's go down here. So we we never really know what happens. Well, with I mean, that. we know that Gene Hackman was able to get these this you know cartel of gun manufacturers to kick up another twenty million dollars, and then another seven on top of that just for his services. I'm guessing like you could probably find a price point for a former executive to shut the hell up and not show up. Like, yeah. I think they do. They recess at that point or they adjourn for the day, but Hoffman goes into the bathroom and this is a, a very oh. good scene, but he goes in oh. and he has a confrontation oh. with Hackman. Uh, excuse me. We're cleaning up. Am I going to get beat up now, Mr. Roar? What'd you do to my witness? Threaten his family, write him a check. Just curious about what your technique is, Mr. Fitch. Maybe he uh, decided against biting the hand that fed him these past few years. You know exactly why he came to us. Oh, please. Don't tell me you hung your case on somebody's conscience. I hung my case on my own conscience. I get it now. You are a moral man living in a world of moral relativity. It's just so quaint, so precious. Don't do that. This is about my witness, right? This is about you messing with my client, my case, and the rules of law that govern our country. Our country? Yes. If you're relying on testimony to win this case, you've already lost it, fella. You think this jury cares anything about negligent distribution, product liability? You bet your ass. Most of them can't even say the words, let alone understand the meaning. You think your average juror is King Solomon? No. He's a roofer with a mortgage. He wants to go home and sit in his barca lounger and let the cable TV wash over him. And this man doesn't give a single solitary drop about truth, justice, or your American way. The one thing I'll say with this scene that I, it's something that I keep noticing on and again throughout the movie. Hoffman is obviously, he's a very talented actor. In this particular movie, his New Orleans kind of South accent it kind of goes in and out at some yeah, times. It does. You're where right. like he's sometimes he sounds like he's like, I'm just a Southern lawyer. And other times it's like, you're just talking like Dustin Hoffman. now. You don't have an yeah, accent. He's just, a, he's just an Upper East Side guy. You know? Yeah. Um, so that, that was the only point. But I'm like, other than that, this is two great actors just going back and forth in the scene here. Well, more importantly. OK, Joe, so going to blow your mind here. <laughs> Did you know? that Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman were roommates in an apartment when they were coming up in New York in the acting scene. Oh. Yes. Dustin Not Hoffman. only that, did you know that this is the first movie that they appeared in together? <laughs> That'd be weird, like, because right? like, obviously this is when they were, like, really, like, young, that they lived together. And they have taken totally different career paths in terms of, like, Hackman has always been more or less sort of like the taciturn kind of badass stoic like tough guy in mm. different capacities whereas Hoffman's always sort of been the more verbose uh kind of like like either been the funny guy or the neurotic guy or just sort of the deliberate like very different guys finally like and, and like masters of their craft like I mean Oscar well Hoffman's got an Oscar I don't know if Hoffman I does have an I don't Oscar, know if but I, look it up I mean like quick, legends yeah. and they finally come toe-to-toe in a shitty New Orleans Parish courthouse bathroom. This epic showdown between, you know, the plaintiff's attorney, you know, the believer in justice, the advocate for the small guy versus the truly cynic jury consultant slash bag man for the bad guy who just does the devil's bidding on everything. 
reflected on everything from their suits to their shoes to their mannerisms. And it's just a wonderful showdown. And then there is that one line that haunts. And then it comes back at the end where Dustin Hoffman says, I've met men like you before and you're going to lose. Maybe not this case, maybe not the next one, but eventually you're going to lose. And you are going to be in a dark room with no one there for you and the walls are closing in because everything you've done prior to this has been for nothing. And Hackman <laughs> says something to the effect of, well, huh, that's funny because I don't give a shit. And like, <laughs> it's just awesome. Like both of these guys are just swinging for the fences and it's beautiful. And I mentioned, Joe, that, you know, Hackman and uh, Hoffman were like roommates and like old friends from back in the day, you know, like coming up in the acting scene. Guess who else was a longtime associate of Hoffman's back in that same time period? And not only were friends, but also rivals in the acting scene. And by guess, obviously, that's not terribly good. Like, uh, what famous commercial actor is Dustin Hoffman's nemesis? He's only known for his iconic role in American commercials. I mean, my mind is just going to the guy in the Allstate commercials, but I know that's wrong. <laughs> um, oh, that's a good guess. The answer is a fellow by the name of Jonathan Goldsmith. Do you know that name? I don't. Let me look him up. Probably not, but you may know him as the most interesting man in the world. Oh, shit. Yeah, they, uh, they worked together and competed for roles. They hated each other. Apparently, I, I do remember reading this somewhere. At one point, they were on stage together, like doing stage acting uh, up in New York. And uh, the most interesting man in the world had just fucking had it with Hoffman and literally just like ran up to him and grabbed him by the throat and put him up against the wall and just said, I'm done with you. Like these guys hated each other. And I just think, kind of think that's interesting. Like, little Dustin Hoffman like, got his ass beat by the most interesting <laughs> man in the world. Uh, but to Hoffman's credit, he's had a little bit of a more impressive filmography yeah. and, and you know, awards to show. Which I did look up. Uh, Gene Hackman has won some Academy Awards. He's been nominated like five or six times. He's won twice for The French Connection and Unforgiven. Amen. So, oh, he did win for Unforgiven. Yeah. Shit. Okay. He got nominated That's for some great. other ones. I can't remember. It was like uh, Mississippi Burning. I know it was one of them that he got nominated for too. But yeah, I mean, obviously he deserves yeah. all. Uh, which, okay. Also, I did point out in this scene, one part uh, that Hackman points out, he says this would never be a jury trial. Do you think it would, be, would have been a jury trial? Mm, not to get too lawyerly on folks, but would it have gotten past summary judgment? Like okay. as a matter of law. Okay. So let's assume it would have gotten past that. Then yes, definitely. It would have been a jury trial. Okay. There's no way one judge is going to be like, oh no, I mean, as judge, I will decide this. Like you got a matter of public interest, something that even though it was a year or two stale, the shooting itself, like, you know, like, I mean, that's what the jury system is for. And that's why, uh, you know, Gene Hackman famously says in this movie, trials are too important for juries. And that's 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 why I wrote it down, because I was like, normally like a product's liability case would not go to a jury because they're not going to want to bring a jury in to hear about that stuff. But I was like, this is a matter of like great public interest. So it probably would be a jury trial. But yeah, I just wanted to see what you thought yeah. of that. And, and it's 
and, and the nerd in me, and I'm sorry to get all like, <laughs> fuck, all goddamn law nerd on this stuff, but it kind of frustrated me. I didn't understand what their legal theory was technically on recovery. After that, Dustin Hoffman kind of decides like, I might be screwed here. I might need to tap into the reserves of the firm. He's going to make a deal with the devil. He's going to sell <laughs> his soul for the right thing. I mean, Which, that raises a lot of moral uh, questions for a character like himself. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it is like a cool thing this movie does where like, it's not just a good plaintiff versus a, like an evil defendant. Like it does it in sort of a different way, which I liked. I wrote down in here, I was like, the firm just has 10 million on tap. Must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> just be able to just be like, oh yeah, 10 million. Sure. Here you go. Yeah. I mean, I have a tough time getting parking validated. So, <laughs> but hey, like, I mean, that's cool. I mean, like, this is a very Grisham thing. Like he has got a hard on for Southern state plaintiff's attorneys like <laughs> that's a world that in this part of the flyover states we're just not familiar with i wonder how much of these archetypes are something that john Grisham just created versus what's the reality he decides that he might actually pay At the same time fitches who's played by gene hackman worker who is the one who broke in and also uh stole the ipod has been doing some more research into who John Cusack actually is. Traces him back to Indiana. He finds out Mm -hmm. that he's actually Jeffrey Kerr, which I wrote down. uh, Jeffrey Kerr (laughs) kind of just looks like a racist John Cusack because he just has that perfect, like, I'm going to Hooters tonight goatee. Uh, that used to be fashionable, I'm told. <laughs> and man, I, I feel sorry for all women who were sexually active from 1992 until 2001. Like, that's rough, man. <sighs> At the same time, John sneaks out of the motel to go meet. I wrote down, I'm like, dude, these cops and guards at the courthouse. They are really bad because they are never actually watching what they need to be watching. To be fair, they're public employees. <laughs> like, I mean, they're just pulling over time, just bring coffee, donuts, and cigarettes. Like, this sucks. But you're absolutely right. He's like, he MacGyvers it out of the apartment and gets back to downtown, like, catches a train from Port Arthur or wherever the hell they are. Illinois, <laughs> back man. into the city. And then just showdown with the man, Hackman. So at the same time, um, between that, like, one kind of like crazy henchman, he gets in a fight with Rachel Weiss, basically to silence her because they're like, maybe we don't have to pay this 10 million. It's good, but it's still such a 2000s action scene where there's like 30 cuts where you can tell it's like, here's <laughs> this just going to bother you, isn't it? Like, this here's gonna... just her feet dangling. Here's just her head. And then there's 30 more cuts of her rolling where you can tell it's obviously a stunt woman. Which it, she doesn't have to do the stunts herself. I don't care, but I, I just it annoys me whenever it's like you took fifty cuts from someone to walk two feet across in a fight scene. So that was like just the one part. She she beats him. Um, she doesn't kill him. She just like messes him up really bad. I think. Correct. We don't know the full extent of what she did to him. She left him at the hospital with a warning. She ups the price to 15 million. Which at this point, I'd, I'd point out they paid 20 million by the jury. Yeah. Now she's coming at another 15 million for the verdict. And I think that at some point, they'll be say, yeah, this, this, is, this case is about worth 10 to 15 million. 
they up it. Also, when Rachel Weiss fights the guy, he was just like gonna kill her. Like he, like I thought it was like to beat her up and like send a message, but at one point he pulls out a knife. I'm like, this guy just goes off script all the time from what Hackman tells him. I, we we don't know if he was gonna kill her. Like I, well, think he pulls out the knife. The, He's like, it was undeveloped. It was, it was underdeveloped. But I think the idea was to take her hostage essentially as like collateral for this verdict. But then. She hit him with a beer bottle. All I can say is that, uh, frankly, whenever Rachel Weisz is, is threatened in any movie, I am very much concerned. I have every vested interest in making sure that she's okay. Well, I, I mean, like, it just, it, it's just a shame she didn't have a gun around <laughs> to like, defend herself. <laughs> then they get into the final closing arguments which I noted some of the stuff that they say, like, yeah, this movie takes place in 2003, but Ugh, still kind of cuts deep for today's world at the same time yeah. too. Like there's some stuff I said, I'm like, yeah, we're definitely still dealing with that. They get into the actual jury deliberations. Hackman finally decides, all right, let's pay him. They yep. wire them the 15 million. But also this- do okay. if you're a banker in the Cayman Islands <laughs> and whenever you see a transaction come in, that's six figures or higher. Do you just assume like, Oh, this is some fucked up shit happening. Like, oh, my only understanding of the Bank of the Cayman Islands is from movies like this. I could only assume it's all just like, eh, it's another, you know, bribe. It's another blackmail payment. Sure, put it through. What kind of military operation do the Caymans have to defend <laughs> their sovereignty of this? I love the concept. I mean, I'm never going to make enough money to actually ever put money there. I mean, well, you know, here's knocking on wood. Maybe I'll get involved in some sort of shady jury consulting <laughs> project. But Christ, man, like just amazing. Just as, as a straw man, like depot for all of our bad doings. I just love it. So he pays at the same time the henchman is just preying on this poor woman's Midwest niceness where she's invited him in for iced tea and lemonade and just bared her soul. So he figures out John Cusack is actually Jeffrey Kerr. Jeffrey Kerr's girlfriend is Rachel Weiss. Rachel Weiss's sister was killed in a school shooting. They tried to sue Total this Kobayashi very- moment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They tried to sue this very gun manufacturer. Gene Hackman worked on the case got them found not liable so that's why he actually wanted himself to be put on the jury in this case so he's like stop don't pay him but they've already paid him this is also at the point where i wrote down like maybe everything hackman does is illegal because they're like burn it down scrub all the records get everything out of here i'm like so he's actually operating completely illegally is what you're saying like everything he does is absolutely (laughs) you know what you can get from juror pools you can get their voter registration and their (laughs) criminal records and their social media accounts and that's now like think about back then like these guys are facing federal charges for what they've done (laughs) like just uh at the same time john cusack in the jury room basically makes the Marine Frank just play himself. He says, mm-hmm. we owe it to her to like, let's look over the facts, sort of n- like nice little poking arguments where finally Frank just like goes on a rant and everyone's like, okay, never mind. I actually don't agree with you, Frank. We should actually find for yeah. the plaintiff in this case. Having watched this a few times, it, it seems like there were a number of no votes on that jury both mm-hmm. from like back and forth and also what we knew that Rankin, uh, Gene Hackman's character had in his pocket. 
Herrera was sort of the like the domino that had a default to knock everyone else. You're absolutely right. He played him. He yeah. just poked him and poked him until he just came out and said, no one's ever given me a goddamn thing. and She shouldn't have shit. Amazing stagecraft. That was an effective tool because very few movies ever get us into the jury box. You know, we never really yeah. see the deliberations, right? Like, like, like there's like 12 anger men and a few others. We don't actually see them debate the facts or the law in here. We just get the dynamic. Frank Herrera is the, is the straw man for the bad guys on this. Like, and John Cusack just disarms him and exposes him. A couple hours later, we have a verdict. And yep. it's for the plaintiff for what? Like, it's like 110 a million or something like that. Yeah, it was like a couple million for com- compensatory damages and then like another $100 million in special or punitive damages. Yeah. Just unreal. Like, yeah. God. Yeah. John Grisham... I, we, we need to chart verdicts in John Grisham movies and books <laughs> for over time, how much money each verdict comes out to. I, I'd like to see that spreadsheet because that's just insane. Kind of with that, after it, they meet up with Hackman in the bar and they show like, we have proof that you've tried to bribe us. And if you ever try to work on a case again, we'll show this and you'll have to explain yourself. So he mentions in that case, this verdict will never hold up. Like it's going to get appealed, which I was like, that's, it's definitely going to get appealed. I mean, I don't know if it will hold up or not, but I was like, he's right that it will get appealed. Yeah, no, and, and absolutely. The U.S. Supreme Court said it a while ago that punitives or exemplary or special damages can't outweigh actual damages by something mm. like a factor of 10. So if they awarded the wife two or three million dollars like the punitives can only be 20 or 30 and like and they'd be absolutely right and like lord knows there's probably plenty of reasons in the story to or in the trial itself to appeal on but it will get appealed but it doesn't change the fact that god damn like gene hackman looking in this suit goes like he strolls into the nearest fucking bar he can yeah. find like and right it across is a, the street Normally, I would say a rough-looking bar, but it's New Orleans, so like it's normal just, it's rules just don't New apply. Bar. Yeah. yeah, it's just a New Orleans bar, and he just gets a finger or two of just straight bourbon or scotch, and he's just like drinking it. And if you notice, and you're watching, it's one of those editing things where at the end of his drink, it's actually fuller than when they showed <laughs> up, and it drives me crazy. But John Cusack and Rachel Weisz just high on the horse, and just yelling at them, "Where's it gonna stop?" You'll never have anything, anything. And that I could have done without. We got to give Rankin a little more dignity. Like this guy's a career bad guy. And for him to lose it on that, I don't know. And that's basically the end of the movie. They essentially run Hackman out of business. They say that they're going to use the money that he tried to bribe them with for the victims of the earlier school shooting that they lost the case on. Hoffman sees them on the street puts it together that Cusack and Weiss were working together. Yeah, the old classic, the old classic denouement of, oh, we all get it. We're all putting it together. We don't need to say a word, which it's effective. And it it leaves you a little bit warm. You're sort of like, oh, you know. I wrote down in my notes, I was like, I was expecting him to look at Weiss and Cusack and then a bus go by and then be gone. Because I was like, that's perfect mid-2000s. Didn't happen. So I was like, all right, Ah. fine. (laughs) Well, you were close enough, though. Your film instincts are right. There's nothing novel about how this movie was made. Much like any Grisha movie, it's not pushing the boundaries. It's condensing 
very arcane type of subject matter, i.e. a lawsuit into a compelling story. At that point, we just need to paint by numbers and it's still fun. Yeah. So, okay, I've got a question for you though. First take, where does this movie for you rate in the John Grisham pantheon? Like I mentioned earlier, not seen a lot of John Grisham movies. Uh, I think I've oh. seen this, The Rainmaker. What's the one with Matthew McConaughey? Time not, to Kill. Yes. I think those are the three that I've seen. Okay. So where does it fall in there? Those are two big ones. The other ones. Yeah. I mean, it's, I would put it third, but that's not saying it's bad because the okay. other two I very much enjoyed. No, I think that's the right take. Uh, and here's the thing of the John Grisham movies and I hope for us to tackle a couple more of them down the road. This movie was different than a lot of John Grisham movies, which are much more procedural and legally bound. Whereas this actually was more of a heist or caper film. Yeah. And like you've alluded to, it is shot super 2000 suspense jump cuts. Like uh, it, 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 it has a different feel than other John Cusack movies. However, like you could easily not know this was just not a John Grisham movie. Like, it just doesn't have the hallmarks of it, other than it being law-oriented. Another question for you. Gene Hackman, the man, he plays a jury consultant or jury jury expert. Yeah. Have you ever encountered a quote-unquote jury expert? Like... I mean, I, I know they exist. I've done research on this. Apparently, there are plenty of businesses and firms that hold themselves out on this, but... Like chiropractory, this seems made up to me. It just seems made up. And that's (laughs) that's what I kind of like thought the whole time where I was like, it seems like something that someone would like hold themselves out as a consultant. But it's also something that at the same time, like you might pay a ton for it. And at the end of it, be like, what did I get? Well, and that's the beauty of this racket is there's no way to test that. (laughs) There is no way to test that. Like, Like this is an industry that, it seems like a bubble industry where it just kind of hypes itself up being like, oh, I have a psych degree. And, and not to cotton to, you know, Dustin Hoffman's like folksy, oh, I'm just a small town you know, <laughs> parish lawyer thing. But like, yeah, they can pick a jury just as well. Like, shoot, man, like I've played enough fantasy sports to know that <laughs> like, oh, yeah, this is probably right. Like, nope. Like, I mean, it, yeah, it, it, it's a random chance. Yeah, I've got another question for you, Joe. I would like to raise a motion to strike taken out of the record. We just want to completely eliminate it because it's inherently untruthful or unreliable or irrelevant. How dare you put that into the court record and for us to consider in this legal proceeding? So what would you like to strike from this movie? What's lacking, either legal or film wise? (laughs) I kind of already said it, but. Honestly, what I would just strike is the action sequence with Rachel Weiss. I want to sh- take out this crappy 2000 style of action filming. And if it could be replaced with a more kinetic type of filming today, or if it could just be guy goes in, next mm-hmm. scene guys at the hospital. Yeah. I think that would have been cooler than this. Like, it's just a type of like filming that just doesn't age well. But overall, I thought this was a fun movie and I really enjoyed it. So there was nothing that I was just like terrible. Now you're right about that. Uh, with that, I would like to strike the scene that I alluded to earlier, the last scene with Gene Hackman 
he, he's finally face to face with his nemesis, which is not the plaintiff's attorney and it's not the judge and it's not the jury. It's Nicholas Easter played by John Cusack and Marley played by his longtime girlfriend. And I guess I'm hoping fingers crossed that they get married. Uh, Rachel Weiss, <laughs> they show up and tell him you lose. And he says, well, you won't have anything after this. What are you going to do? You'll have nothing, nothing. Hands up. I have not read the book. That strikes me as something that just came from the book and they just needed a bookend and yeah. to make a play on words there to do that. And like, like ah, this, man, this like, screenplay's already too many pages long. We need to wrap it up. Yeah. And, and as uh, this character is like Hackman's villain is badass and competent. And yeah. he just got outmaneuvered. And finally he got outmaneuvered by something he'd never seen before. It, it just didn't seem true to me. I could have used that. Uh, the law stuff, emotional yeah, strike, that, like, plenty but at the same time like it was compelling courtroom drama and what what score did you give to this movie then? okay so are we are we talking passing the bar yeah. for those yeah for those who bar? didn't listen to our first episode which one why not two welcome uh <laughs> we we do uh grading on a scale of zero to 100 like the bar if you get over 50 you pass the bar means you're a good enough movie but just like the bar exam, it's only our feelings, so it's completely arbitrary, and someone else might like it too. Yeah, yeah. This movie easily passes the bar. Yeah, the, the, for this sure. is uh, not by any means the ideal legal movie. This is not. I mean, Dustin Hoffman is not Atticus Finch. I, I'm going to give it higher than uh, Liar Liar, our last one. I'm going to give it an 85, just because mm. what it's lacking in law, it's a true you know, Grisham thriller. Uh, and like, it keeps you guessing for much of it. It's fun. It's by 2003 standards, especially it is quickly cut. It moves. Yeah. It, it, it's entertaining. Uh, there is not one weak actor in this whole thing. Like oh. we've established, it's an ensemble cast. Yeah, for sure. So I came in just a little bit lower than you. I gave it a 79 out of a hundred. You bitch. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's still a very good passing score. It was mainly just because there was a couple scenes where it drug for me in the middle. But other than that, I put, this is a very fun movie. I really enjoyed how they didn't do the typical sort of good plaintiff versus bad defendant. It was a different dynamic than that. It was a bit 2000s for me where it didn't age well the best. But mm. overall, fun, good movie. I would encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to go watch it. Uh, kind of like we did with our last uh review of liar liar we did what kind of person would Ooh. this character be in law school um, okay. okay we got a couple different ones i mean you have some like maybe like didn't actually go to law school or didn't finish law school but we still like could put them there um, oh absolutely so i mean the first two there's the two lawyers there's dustin hoffman and i don't know his name i know he was the senator in x-men uh that's it yeah yeah he's senator <laughs> kelly so Hoffman, like, what would you say he was in law school? I, my feeling was that he went to law school a long, long time ago. So it was a totally different dynamic, but. I, I think Hoffman's guy was, a, you know, a prodigal, you know, product, a super intellectual and a true believer. He had all sorts of opportunities to go this way or that way. I you know, need to do something in this world and help yeah. people brought him there and there are those as much crap as we talk about the legal industry 
there are those people who just have that mix of both talent and aptitude. And I think he would have been the guy you would have at your bar, you know, your bar meeting or bar drink up, you know, in law school, you know, he never made it that much because he was too busy most of the time. But when he showed up, you were just happy to see him. You're like, Oh, he's Justin, where you been? Where you been? Yeah. He strikes me as a very like charismatic guy that everyone wants to be friends with. The more interesting thing is, where does Hackman fall on this? So I wonder if he went to law school, he seems like the slimy guy who's like going to stab anyone in the back. But he also seems like the guy who like, he probably studies his ass off because he's smart. Mm-hmm. He's good at what he does. But he also probably studies not just the class, but everyone in the class. And he's like, I know what is her weakness and his weakness and what I can like use to make myself better than those people. Um, yeah. That's a good take. That's a good take. I don't see him as being the villain of the law school class. He was never the, you know, unpopular kid raising the contrarian take of like, well, but actually Japanese <laughs> internment was, was justified. And here's why. I mean, he, he was never that guy or like in the crim law class being like, well, she didn't say no. Like he's, not <laughs> the guy. he's too smart for that. Okay. Like, uh, I think you're right. He's astute. He's, he's calculating. But like, I think you and I would have liked him in law school. Matter of factly, we would have been <laughs> friends. We would have not necessarily trusted him. But I, I think his character is arrived at after a long career of doing the devil's bidding opportunity after opportunity. And you get darker and deeper into it. And For then sure. he just becomes and realizes this is what I am and this is what I'm good at. Which, I mean, which begs the question then moving on to GSAC, because he never finished law school in the movie. If he would have finished law school, I don't see him as being the guy who ends up like taking concession after concession until he's just like a corporate sellout. I think he's the guy that like he might take on a ton of debt to champion the right cause in his mind whether it's like environmental or plaintiff's cases or whatever it may be. But I think he's the kind of guy, he always has that sort of noble cause in his mind throughout law school and after. No, no. And and this is the toughest one for me to call because we have uh, a broad span of John Cusack templates to work from. (laughs) We've got a lot of, uh, we've got a lot of data points to kind of pull things from. I think the natural inclination is to be like, oh, well, he's the, the lovable guy who pulls everyone together, which is true. So you'd think that like within law school and then after that into the law, he would do some sort of like noble venture. Here's a hot take though. And I think this is the accurate one. John Cusack's character, for example, in Grass Point Blank was essentially a callback to Lloyd Dobler from Say Anything, where one thing went wrong for him, where he had one moment of clarity and he went dark. <laughs> and then he became a fucking hit man. He's still charismatic and he still is probably like morally like a good enough guy where he treats, uh, you know, people in his ambit, like his friends, family, neighbors, like with respect and decency. But I think John Cusack actually becomes a slick, like a hair slick back corporate shark. I think he becomes one of the bad guys in a John Grisham novel. I can see that right, because the man plays hitman too well he, he's just <laughs> like as much as we love john cusack there's a duality to his uh, range and he can play the bad guy he's a very yeah, no, he's a very good actor okay well, I, mean, I, I, could, I could see we that i haven't seen him too much lately maybe the real 
reality of if this was a guy in law school is he is the guy who realizes that law school is terrible and he drops out after the first year. So, which, uh, yeah, I, I think the world would be much better off if most attorneys actually had that sort <laughs> of uh, <laughs> clarity. <laughs> Overall, very enjoyable movie. Passed the bar for both of us. Yeah, I would encourage anyone to go see it. I- Man, uh, I guess I've had a soft spot for this movie for a long time, and I can't really say why. Maybe it's the New Orleans thing. Uh, maybe it's the John Cusack thing. Maybe it's Rachel Weisz, who we haven't <laughs> talked about enough. Gene Hackman doesn't. I mean, like, it's just star-studded. Studded, the plot, it, 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 it's not thin. It's not nuanced. It's just right in the middle. And you know what? It's like a good cheeseburger, uh, but it's given to you at the best place you want to be you know, filled with people that you want to be around with. Very nice. I like that. Well, from me and Spencer, this is Legal Fiction Podcast. Remember, never talk to the cops, never go to law school, and remember none of this is legal advice. Hell yeah.